So in case you weren't here two weeks ago, this is Jake Herring. Yeah. Jake, what's your role here? Uh, I'm the uh, teaching and equipping pastor at Candeo. Great. Yeah. I've been... Was there more you were looking for? Well, I was looking at your glasses, <laughs> and literally two nights ago, I was trying to convince Natalie that I would look good in glasses just you like would. yours. You Can absolutely I, Can I see them real quick? Yeah. We have time. They're, they're $19. That's on it? Zenny. Are they Are they real? Yeah, they're, they're yeah. real. No, okay. they're not fashion glasses. Well, just making sure. I'm not that guy. Wow. Yay? Uh, nay? <laughs> okay, fine. <laughs> Natalie said that I'd have to change. Thank you. Natalie was, said I had to change my whole fashion. You look great just the way you are. Thank you. You're very attractive. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, so we want to take <laughs> the next 30 minutes and we will have a hard stop at 10.02. Um, to unpack. Are we gonna, we're going to pray then, right? Yeah, we'll pray then. Okay. So once the Comes alarms go off, day, we're people. praying. Wherever we're at in the conversation, that's where we're going to end. Um, so, Jake, your sermon text brought mm -hmm. up this concept of election, yeah. predestination. So J that's why Jake's here to help us unpack this, this doctrine. And our goal really tonight is this. Of the theological questions I get as, you know, as a salt company employee, I think questions about predestination are probably the number one question I get. And on the one hand, I understand because it's confusing and it's like, man, what is this thing? What? But on the other hand, it's like, I kind of want that to stop. <laughs> like in all honesty, it's like, man, I really want us to wrestle with other doctrines before we get to this doctrine. Um, it's great to wrestle with this. There's, there's riches in this doctrine. But for a lot of you, if you're a non-believer, this is really not the first place I'd start with you. I'd start with the resurrection of Jesus, uh, the authority of the Bible, Christ's deity, his atonement, uh, justification by faith alone. Like those like key tenets that we know um, with a lot of certainty from, from text. This doctrine is incredibly intriguing, incredibly mysterious, and so often it gets a lot of attention, which is fine. There's things that God's word does tell us about it, but if you're not a believer or if you're a new believer, this is not where I'd start with you. So before like, I would dive in deep on this topic with you, I would really work through some of those other key tenets. So let me give a quick overview of what we're talking about when we approach this, say a few opening remarks, ask you a few questions. I'll mostly be interviewing Jake during this. I'll throw in some stuff too, but so what are we talking about? So predestination is uh, basically this doctrine of whether or not or in what way God chose humans for a salvific relationship with himself. Did he choose that before the foundation of the earth, unconditional on the merits of humanity, or did he have some foreknowledge of who would choose him? And that's what the word predestination means. Regardless, predestination is clearly in the Bible. So it's clearly in the Bible. The question really is, what are we talking about when we're talking about predestination? So Jake, my first question for you is, as we approach this subject, what's at stake? Like whether you land on either of those two views, mm. like what's at stake in this? Yeah. Um, as we were talking about this yesterday, I think the thing that's at stake, the thing, here, here's what's not at stake. Um, what's not at stake is your salvation. Uh, what's not at stake, so one of the questions that we were kind of talking about is, um, can somebody who, 
who disagrees with where we land on our understanding of predestination and election? Can that person be a member of Candeo Church? And I go, absolutely. Like, there is a broad spectrum of, of belief that falls within Orthodox Christianity that there are people who I would disagree with on this doctrine and on other doctrines that, um, I, I love where you start, Stephen. Like, this is... This is an important doctrine. I wouldn't say it's an essential doctrine. And so uh, what we do is we try not to draw like such a hard line going like if you don't, if you don't land where we land on this, then you are uh, outside of Orthodox Christianity. We don't say that. So what's, what's not at stake is, uh, is your salvation. What's not at stake is your ability to be involved both in this ministry and at Candeo Church. Um, we think it's beautiful that there are that there's a spectrum of belief on some of these uh, secondary and tertiary issues. Uh, but what I would say is at stake as we dive into understanding predestination and election more. Really, honestly, at the end of the day, is joy. And I say that because what we see so often um, when Paul and other New Testament writers are talking about the doctrine of election, what they're what they're doing is they're bringing it up not to just give a like theological lecture. What they're doing, they're doing it for a very pastoral reason, and it's to give uh, confidence and assurance to the people that are listening to them. And so. The way that, like for us, election can maybe, maybe for you, if you've kind of grown up in church circles, like that's kind of like a trigger word a little bit where it's like, oh, that's really contentious. What the New Testament writers are doing when they bring up the doctrine of election is actually to comfort the listeners. And the reason for that is because as we understand to a greater degree, to a greater depth of color, the nature of our salvation, it it ought to produce in us joy and praise. And we'll get to that kind of towards the end here. But what I think is at stake here is joy, honestly, as we understand more fully the nature of our salvation. You cannot, you cannot land where, where we you know, kind of land on this um, and you're still a Christian. What I, my appeal to you though is like, oh man, I think you're missing out on understanding the greatness of God's grace that he's extended toward us, toward us in salvation. So that's, what, that's what's at stake, I think. Great. So we'll do an explanation of election. We'll work through a couple of the objections and then we'll apply it because knowledge without application is useless. So uh, before we do that though, as we approach election, we all have to have an understanding that there is an element of mystery to this doctrine. So as we unpack it, we have to like start with there is an incomprehensible element to this doctrine. That at the end of the day, there, there is something in this doctrine that we will never be able to have the ability to fully grasp. Now, some people will outright reject Christianity or a doctrine if there's any element of mystery, but we should be totally comfortable that there are things about God that finite beings can't fully comprehend. So, let's do an explanation of election. Jake, how would you define election? Yeah, so we're, so tonight we're gonna use predestined predestination and election interchangeably. And the reason is because they're pretty much the same. Predestination is probably a broader view. Um, when we're talking about election specifically, what we're talking about is God's gracious decree whereby he chooses some for eternal life. And so if you're going, what's the difference between predestination and election? Election is more specifically honed in on God's decree towards someone for eternal life. Predestination could be in reference to any sort of, any act of, any redemptive act of God. Um, hopefully that's helpful, yeah. But God's gracious decree whereby he chooses some for eternal life. That's the definition. 
Great. And yes, that's good. We'll start. We'll keep that. So, what would be the some of the key texts that are mm-hmm. going to shape and and help us understand that definition or even support that definition? Yeah, and really, the I mean, it's it's the whole reason we're doing this right now was as you jump into the book of Ephesians, like you can't help but run into this, right? As, as Paul talks about uh, predestination in Ephesians 1, uh, 3 through 6, uh, when you get into the book of Romans, as you get into Romans 8, 28 through 30, and then, and then what Paul does is he explains uh, basically what he brings up with, uh, with election and predestination in 8, 28 through 30. What he does is he, is he explains it in Romans 9 by giving the example of Jacob and Esau, um, and then we would look at like, at like verses like uh, Acts 2.23, Acts 4, uh, 27 through 28. Um, I mean, I could go uh, John 6, 28, 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26. Like, it's Hopefully kind, you got all those. It's kind of everywhere, right? <laughs> and, and here's the thing. I mean, it, one of the... <laughs> one of laughing the thing, at my laugh. The turkey call. The turkey call. Can you do the, what was the other one? The, the goose? The goose? It's not my laugh, and thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. back on. So, <laughs> so honestly, one, one of the things, uh, it also in, in how should we approach this doctrine, and I, I hopefully this will be helpful, is we need to approach this biblically, okay? It's really easy for something, for a topic like election to... I think for us, if we're being honest, it somehow offends a sense of justice within us where we go, well, how can that be fair? Like, that's, that's a big question we can ask. And one of the things I, I say in response to that question is, okay, that's a, val- that's a totally valid question, but let's make sure that we're understanding this doctrine, not through the filter simply of our, emotion, of our emotions, um, but also through the filter of what the Bible says. And so as I rattle off all those verses, it's not just to like play some like, like proof texting trump cards. It really is one of these things that I think that as you begin to understand the doctrine of election and you read your Bible, like you, it's hard not to see it. Honest, and I'm not saying that like people who don't land this way, like don't read their Bibles or aren't, you know, so there, there are plenty of, of great theologians who land differently. All I'm saying is for where, for where I'm at, like as I read through the scriptures, it is like, I can't, I can't help but be smacked in the face with it. So, I mean, there, there's more verses that we could use for it, but those are just a few. Yeah, I think you know, to unpack one, Ephesians 1 really does explain the position of election that we'd present, which is, you know, he says in verse 4 that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to his gracious good pleasure and will. So in that, you have so many things. You have before the foundation of the world, you have he chose us, and he didn't just choose us in some vague sense. He chose us to be holy and blameless before him, which would be salvation. Not only did he choose us to be holy and blameless before him, but he predestined us to be adopted, to be brought into a, a relationship with him through Jesus Christ. So, you know, there you have, you know, God choosing before the foundation of the world believers to come into relationship with him through Jesus Christ. So I think that, that really is a very key text um, yeah, and then you brought up Romans 9, so. Yeah. So what would you say, like, on this definition, before we go into the objections, like, is maybe, like, the 
the maybe the critical thing that has maybe convinced you of this position uh, that God has indeed chosen some, not conditioned on our merit, but uh, conditioned on his love um, for salvation. Like what would you say is kind of the key issue or the key thing that has gotten you here? Yeah, it, it honest, one of, one of the biggest things was really Stephen's text tonight. Uh, recognizing and understanding just how severe our situation before God was. Uh, I, I, put it this way. Um, say you have three people. Uh, one of them died by having a heart attack in the middle of the night. Another one, another one of them died by um, a gunshot wound. And the other one uh, jumped on, like, a grenade was thrown into the room. They jumped on it, and they were blown to pieces. Like, we don't even have all of their body parts. Uh, Which one of them is more dead? You go, that's a stupid question. They're all dead. Like, it it doesn't matter how they died. Like, the degree to which they're dead isn't contingent on how they died. What we, what we have here is like the fact that they are all equally dead. And so Ephesians 2, like laying out for us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins has to then mean that in order for us to respond to anything, there has to have been life infused in a dead person in order to give them even the means to which to respond. You would be freaked out if you walked through the cemetery and there was the more dead section and the less dead section, right? You're like, what does less dead mean? Like, are they, <laughs> that's like zombie apocalypse, you know, scenario there. But it's like, no, we, we are all dead before God. And there had to be an outside actor to give us even the ability to respond um, in, in faith. And so the question, and, and this was, was a couple weeks ago, and even tonight I thought you did a great job with, with talking about like, the, the question isn't, isn't do people respond to the gospel? The question is why? Why do people respond to the gospel? It's because God has, God has granted them repentance, which is what we see in, in the Second Timothy 2, uh, 24 to 26 passage, like, like so that God may grant them repentance. Repentance isn't just something you come up with on your own. It's something that is granted to you as a gift from the Father as he opens your eyes to respond to the, uh, to the goodness of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So that's a long answer to your short question. Yeah, but no, Ephesians 2, honestly. Like, we're dead in our sins, yeah. And, yeah. And the, Theological term for that would be total depravity or total inability. And, and it comes from Romans 3, um, which says in verse 10 that there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All have alike have become worthless. There's no one who does what is good, not even one. Um, and you just get a pretty sobering picture of the plight of humanity in that, that as people who are dead in our sins, uh, outside of God's gracious act, there would be no one that chose God. And so for me, that's really where the key issue lies is, can humans choose the things of God apart from God's grace? And I think that there's, uh, you know, Romans 3 or Ephesians 2 would say, no, we're dead in our sins and there's no one who does good, not even one, no one who understands, no one who seeks God. So, so let's go through, we have 14 minutes left. Let's go through some objections and hit these um, as fast as we want. <laughs> Number we'll one, this, this 
presentation of the explanation of election feels very like like fatalism. Like it seems like everything was determined and like our decisions, our actions have no real significance. It feels very like like a system of fatalism. Yeah. Um, this, this, is, this is part of where the question of like, well, what about human free will? Like if God is sovereign, does that mean that humans don't have free will? And to that, again, I would, I would go back to um, Ephesians 2. I mean, we're gonna hit some of the same drums here, but I'll say, no, actually God's sovereignty and human, it doesn't negate human free will, um, but we are all constrained by the inclinations of our nature. We don't just make decisions in a vacuum, right? Like we have, we have reasons why we do things. And so when we think of sin, not just as the bad things that we do, but the bad reasons for which we do them, because you can do good things for bad reasons, right? And so when we think of free will, it goes, no, humans have free will to do, to freely do anything they want to do according to their nature. And so apart from the grace of God, you are free to do whatever you want. Unfortunately, though, the bad news is that the state of your nature, being a dead enemy of God, like your inclination is to do things that are opposed to God and to even do good things for reasons that are opposed to God. And so God's sovereignty and human free will aren't in opposition to each other. It's just that apart from God's grace, our free will is constrained to act in accordance with, uh, with our nature that is a that is an enemy of god yeah 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 another another thought on that i really think that this is is the moment where mystery happens and so acts 223 you mentioned it it says yeah. this uh, he's peter is talking to the people who killed jesus he says though he jesus was delivered up according to god's determined plan and foreknowledge you used lawless people to nail him to the cross and kill him. So in one breath, the apostle Peter does two things. He says that there was a predetermined plan that Jesus would be delivered up on the cross, and he holds the people who did that and chose to do that culpable for their decision to do it. That is where the mystery is. <laughs> because here's what happens. You said, you know, we could list all the proof texts that sound like election and God's sovereign, but you could also list a lot of verses that make it sound like we have choice and decisions. And this verse beautifully demonstrates that both those two things are true and how God sovereignly ordains every day of my life and how I have real volition and decision-making powers that I will be held responsible for and culpable for is mysterious. That, I think, is the heart of the mystery of this doctrine. So. And that's, that's what Romans 9 really fleshes out. Like, if you're really wanting, if you're going, okay, I'm not convinced of, of this interpretation of the doctrine of election, I would encourage you, read through Romans 8, Romans 9, and Romans 10. And because Romans 9 really is, like, the explanation of both God's sovereignty and the, the culpability of human sinfulness. Like he, and he uses the example of Pharaoh, of, of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And, and Paul even brings up in Romans 9, like, like how in the world can that be fair then? Like how can you hold him accountable for what he did if it was you who hardened his heart so that he would do it? And uh, I'll let you read Paul's response to that. It's pretty fantastic. 
Yeah, and then you It's turn, basically like, who are you? And then you turn the page to Romans 10. So Romans 9 is one of the most mm -hmm. classic texts to explain predestination election. Then you turn the page to Romans 10, and what you see is Paul saying, you call on the name of the Lord and be saved. You go out and preach Jesus so that people respond in faith. And so it's like, is Paul a maniac? It's like, no, I think in, when he gets to Romans 11, he says, mm. oh my goodness, who can comprehend God? And it's like, because these two things are presented as true, that God has a sovereign plan and has ordained every day of your life and has elected some for salvation. And we are creatures of volition who are held culpable for our decisions. Mm -hmm. That is mind boggling and we will not be able to comprehend that as finite beings. Yeah. Um, one of the most, you know, basically the, the presentation of the other position would be that something along the lines of God foreknew who would, mm -hmm. who would choose to respond to him in faith. How would, we, how would you respond to that? What texts speak to that? Yeah. Um, I think of, uh, of Deuteronomy 7. So, um, man, yeah, we don't have time to get into the whole scope of redemptive history. But uh, as we look at the church, uh, the church is analogous to, anyway, uh, the people of Israel. And so what you see in Deuteronomy chapter 7 is God is telling the people of Israel exactly why he chose them. And you want to know what the reason why God chose the people of Israel? It was because he loved them. Not because they were greater, not because they were bigger, not because they were stronger, but because he loved them. And you go, why did God choose them? Because he loved them. Wait, but what about them did he love? He loved them. And so that like sets the framework for, um, did God look through the, the corridors of time and go, well, I, I know that they're going to choose me and so therefore I'm going to then elect them because I already knew that they were gonna choose me. Uh, when you do that, what, you, what you're doing is you're, you're creating a weird like space-time continuum where you are still the ultimate actor of your salvation. Like now God is responding to you. What we see in foreknowledge isn't so much uh, necessarily just a, a chronology. Foreknowledge is actually more of a relational term. And so when, when we see scriptures that say that like God foreknew us, like Romans 8, uh, 28 and through 30, uh, what, you, what that actually means isn't just that he foreknew you, like, like knew you before you were born. It was, it's more of a relational term. Like he knew, he loved you. Like God foreloved you. It wasn't that he looked ahead and, and saw that you were gonna make a particular decision. We read that into the text. We go, oh, God foreknew that we would choose him when the text never says that. But it does say that he foreknew us. And what that means is that he foreloved us. Before we were ever born, he foreloved us. None of you ladies would, would sit across from, let's say, your fiance. And when he, said, when he says to you, I loved you before I even met you, none of you would go, where do you get off? Right? Like, <laughs> like you didn't even, what, like, you wouldn't get offended by that. That's actually an endearing thing because he, has, he had already set his affections on you before he even met you. In an even, in an even more infinitely greater way, God set his affections on you before you were ever created. And so when, you, when we think of foreknew, it's not that he foreknew our decision, it's that he foreloved us. Why? Because he loved us by his own act of grace. Yeah. yeah. I'm gonna work through these two quickly. So one is explain passages that say God wills everyone to be saved. Um, you, had, you had a great one when we were talking about this. Yeah, there's, there's a... What theologians would refer to as the secret will of God and the revealed will of God, or God's uh, 
will, sovereign will or his expressed will. And what that, would, what that is is that God expresses or reveals that he has a desire that all people come to salvation. But he has a sovereign will, or some people call it a secret will, that there's actually something, though, that is of higher importance to him than the salvation of all people. And how you answer what's more important to him is kind of what lands you on either side. So what we would say is that God's highest aim is for his glory. So as you go through Ephesians 1, what did he predestine us for? To the praise of his glory. Like it says, for his glory, multiple times in Ephesians 1. So God's highest aim is his glory. Therefore, he is willing, in Romans 9 it says, to endure objects of wrath so that his full glory might be made known to, to the objects of mercy. So the example would be like, man, I really want Isla to be happy, but I'm willing to spank her because I'm willing for her to not be cheerful in that moment so that she develops as an adult. I have an expressed will that she'd be cheerful but I'm willing, you know, I have a sovereign will to spank her because I want her to be a functioning adult one day. So I'm willing to give up that thing for something that's of greater value. The other kind of side would say the thing that, so, you know, the, the group that would take a different stance would say, no, the thing that is most important to God is human's free choice. So that is why he doesn't save all people. The thing that is God's highest aim is that man would retain his, his free choice that is unhindered by God's sovereign, sovereign will. So, can, can I, like one minute on yeah. that. This, God's ultimate concern for the display of his own glory is the through line of the entire Bible. And again, this is why we need to interact with these doctrines biblically, because from beginning to end, the reason why God acts, if you look through how he acts in redemptive history all throughout the Old Testament, everything he's doing with the nation of Israel is for the sake of his name. Like if you just go, just Google like for my name's sake, or for the sake of my name or for the praise of my glory, it shows up time and time and time again as being the very reason why God is acting. And so what Stephen is saying is like even even more than loving you and saving you, God first loves himself. He loves you tremendously, un unconditionally, not because of your merit. He loves you because he loves you. But at the end of the day, God's highest concern is the display of his own glory. And you can't, don't get mad at me about that. Get mad at God about that because that's all through, the, all through the Bible. And so... But the question then is like, okay, so is, is God most concerned? Is his ultimate concern the praise of his own glory? Or is his ultimate concern pre preserving human self-determination? Is his ultimate concern making sure that you ultimately have a free will? And what we would go is, no, it seems as though what we see throughout Scripture time and time again is that God is consistently acting for the, for the sake of the praise of his own glory. And that, and what is God's glory? It's his holiness put on display. And so for there, and this is, this is where this gets, you, you start to feel a bit offended, but this is where Romans 9 takes you and goes, 
we don't see the fullness of God's display, which is his holiness put on display. That's what we see in Revelation. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. The glory of God is the display of his holiness. If there are not objects of wrath, then we don't see the full display of the holiness of God, which means that there's an aspect of his character that, that he is ceasing to put on display throughout the universe, which God's ultimate concern is the display of his own glory, which means that his ultimate display of his holiness, which includes wrath. Whole another late night right there. Yeah. Um, okay, so here's some application of this. You already mentioned one. Whenever the New Testament writers bring this up, um, for the most part, I'd say, there are pro- you could probably find an exception, but for the most part, the New Testament writers are applying this doctrine as a comfort as an assurance. Um, it should bring us great comfort that our salvation doesn't, doesn't, that in no way rests in us, but completely rests in God. That should bring us great comfort and assurance. So that's one. Number two is a great humility. Um, if any part of our salvation rests on us, even the, the like predisposition or intellectual like ability to see the things of God as a good thing, then that creates room for pride. And what did we just read? That our salvation is by grace through faith so that no one can boast. This doctrine produces a humility that is unparalleled to anything else, that we didn't even have the capacity outside of God's grace to choose the things of God. That should give us great humility as we're interacting with people. Um, Three, evangelism. So some people are like, you know, there's another objection of like, wait, how does evangelism happen? But on the other hand, it's like, man, what courage we get knowing that God has people and it doesn't in any way depend on my ability to convince them. At the end of the day, what's called of me is to be faithful with the message and God will reveal himself to people. That's what happens in Acts 16 with Lydia. God opens her eyes to understand the gospel. Um, the quick explanation is that God not only uh, elected the, the people who would come to salvation, but he also elected the means for how people would come to salvation in him. So Romans 10, 14 yeah. Yeah, says that how can anyone believe without someone preaching? And not just preaching like, you know, I just did, but preaching meaning proclaiming the gospel person to person. And then lastly, praise. Um, where, where Paul ends in Romans 11 is in this this poetic moment of just praising God for who he is in his mystery, his incomprehensibility, all of that. It just produces in him a praise, wonder, awe. Um, So that's, I think, where we land on this is, man, we, we should be comforted. We should be humble. We should have courage in evangelism, and we should praise and honor God. He's mysterious. We don't understand him, but we're like two year olds trying to understand the decision of a 40-year-old. There's gonna be things that we just don't get. And I think that this is one that we can know things about, but at a certain point, we just won't get. So, 1001, Jake, until it turns 1002, I got a question for you. 1002, you'll have to wait till the next time I ask you to do a late night. God, we uh, pray for more and more laborers to go out because the harvest is plentiful. Um, God, you, you do say that you have a desire that all people would come to know you. And we're, we're filled with courage knowing that 
Some will. Some will most definitely come to know you, respond in the faith. And God, we pray that we would be people that get to experience that, that we would have the joy of getting to participate in the mission of God, filled with courage, filled with humility, um, pointing people to the one who has saved them from sin. And God, thank you for being a God who has rescued us, that in your grace towards humanity, though we were running from you, you have drawn some of us to, to a relationship with you. God, we want to be faithful with the message that you've entrusted to us and that we would proclaim the gospel so that people would come to know you. Amen. All right. Hey, thanks for coming tonight. We will see you next week.